The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Aaronsmealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change. Have you ever walked into an office replete with inspirational quotes everywhere? Whether it's the cheesy stock posters and mugs so vibrantly mocked in the office TV shows, I'm thinking, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Or the more Silicon Valley cool version. Facebook walls were famously painted with COO Sheryl Sandberg's favorite quote, what would you do if you weren't afraid? The very purpose of the pre-pandemic office environment seemed designed to convince people that they were just a small step away from being superhuman. And yet, if you talk to people who actually work in those offices, you know it's often just not a mentally healthy or psychologically healthy place to be. Yeah, there might be a pool table and kombucha in the fridge, but people at all levels of leadership know that admitting they feel depressed, anxious, or scared they're going to fail is just not okay. Why the disconnect? I feel like, and I'm not alone, the pre-pandemic inspo just got a little out of hand. Side hustles, max productivity, intermittent fasting for excellence, Instagram. I think most of us now know that's a bunch of crap. So how will startup culture, which drives so many trends in leadership, change now? Will tech leaders feel less pressure to appear perfect in front of investors, staff, and the media? Today's guest and I dive deep into the realities of mental health and startup culture, especially in the high-tech industries. As a journalist at a prestigious publication, my guest has been very open in print about her own mental health struggles, so lots of tech founders call her to share their stories but they won't go on the record, at least until they feel they've reached a certain level of success. Like, I'm pretty sure Elon Musk doesn't care a whit what people think about his mental health state, although many journalists love to speculate anyway. I speak with our guest, Catherine Hsu, about her experiences as a young woman who found herself in a psychiatric ward facing authority figures who just wouldn't take her seriously. Her experience as a first-generation American daughter and as a young, ambitious person finding her way in tech, journalism, and life. Catherine Chu is a journalist who has been covering the global tech industry since 2012 for TechCrunch, and she joins me now. Well, Catherine, I just welcome. Um, I found you by Googling you. <laughs> um, I'm curious why... Uh, you chose to write about mental health in the tech industry? Well, basically at that point, um, it was a few years ago, and I've been writing about covering startups for about, I think, eight or nine years now. And when I started back in about 2012, 
or so, there was definitely still that mindset of like, how do you optimize your productivity? You know, every time I walked into a startup office or co-working space, you know, there'd be inspirational quotes painted on the walls, you know, all that <laughs> stuff, productivity hacks, everything. It was all always about optimizing your time. And then I noticed there started to be a shift where people were like, we have to really start talking about depression in the startup space. Just like from conversations with founders, I could tell it was pretty prevalent. You know, there were a few that kind of opened up to me. And they would say like, yeah, it's definitely an environment that isn't exactly conducive to mental health. But at the same time, it's not really talked about because you kind of want to put your best face forward, especially if you've received funding. I wrote an article basically being like, we have to talk about depression in tech. And after that, I had quite a few people reach out to me. So I wrote I, I wrote a couple follow-up articles about it, which were specifically about founder experiences. I think at that time, all of them or most of them wanted to be anonymous. I don't know if it would change if I wrote other articles like that. Now, I'm not sure people would be more willing to go on record. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you said to me when we first talked was you said, and it, it shocked me, to be honest, you said that the mental health discussion hasn't really evolved over the, I think it's eight years that you've been covering the tech and the startup industry at TechCrunch. And that really, that shocked me. Does that shock you? I think it does kind of, and it doesn't. Because the thing <laughs> is like, I feel like people are more willing, what they're willing to do right now is push back on this whole like, oh, you know, productivity, side hustle, you know, hyper inspirational, you could, you could do this if you only worked a little bit harder, you know, you could sleep when you're dead mentality. Or fasted. My favorite is when they have the weird fast or the weird exercise routines that make them hyper productive and they write about it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because, you know, whenever I see somebody tweet out something on Twitter, like, oh, you know, you could achieve X if only you did Y. There's always people who like, well, especially if it's somebody who's high profile, there's going to be people who jump in and say, well, first off, you know, work-life balance isn't an option for people who have families. You know, there's class issues. There's, mm -hmm. especially I think during the pandemic, you know, there's education, there's networking, there's you know, there are a whole lot of reasons why it's not simply like, well, if you just get yourself into the right mindset, you can achieve X, Y, Z. So what I've seen evolve is that there's a willingness to push back, it's not just people becoming more productive or using productivity hacks or like changing their mindset. But um, what I haven't seen change necessarily is people be more willing to talk about the mental health toll that working in a startup environment takes you know, I, I think people are still guarded about that. And it's kind of hard for me to compare to other industries, because I've basically covered a startup industry for, you know, almost a decade now. But yeah, I, th I, th I think definitely people are still guarded. What, what, why? Especially in the startup and tech industry, why are people so guarded? I think part of it is because, you know, if you're a startup founder, and you've raised funding, you you know, you're responsible for the health of your startup, you have a responsibility to your investors, you have a responsibility to the other founders on your team, you have a responsibility to your employees. And then especially if you have competition too, um, you don't want to like broadcast any kind of personal weakness 
I thought maybe the pandemic would kind of make people open up more about their experiences. But in terms of like, basically my own interactions with people, the founders who are more most willing to talk about mental health are the ones who are kind of working in health tech, specifically mental health tech. So yeah, I I think there's still definitely um, reasons they might want to shy away until you've reached like a certain level of success. Right. So there's a fear of vulnerability. There's a fear that their backers, their the financial backers will think that they aren't as investable, maybe. Yeah, I, I think definitely, because you do have like a lot of responsibility to your investors. There are venture capitalists out there who have been open about their mental health issues and who are probably more personally supportive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, th- I think definitely it's like, you know, you're, you're founding a business you're trying to, you know, get to the point where maybe you're making a profit. You have a lot of stakeholders, you know, either financial or otherwise. No, I, mean, I, I understand that. In a way, it's almost like you're investing in a racehorse, you know, and, and you yeah. want to make sure the racehorse is in, in peak performance. I think that, on the other hand, that upholds people to such a crazy standard. It um, does. Right. I I wanted to ask you specifically, you mentioned health tech. You know, I just, even from the sheer amount of pitches that I get in my inbox right Mm -hmm. now, I feel like the area, and it is the pandemic of telehealth and health tech and mental health apps is just exploding Mm, and getting a lot of funding. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in that space? Well, basically what I'm seeing right now in the space is we've kind of seen kind of Mm -hmm. evolution, basically people being like, okay, well, how can you use a phone as kind of like a mood tracker to kind of like as the as tech has improved, you know, you have the whole proliferation of kind of, you know, apps like Calm, Headspace, other ones that are kind of based around meditation and apps are also based on cognitive behavioral therapy because those are self-directed journaling or self-directed exercises. Well, and it an feels app. optimizing. It's funny. It, it it feels like if you can track it and log it and get prompted, maybe it's a little more in control. I don't Definitely. Know. Um, but one of the major issues I think a lot of apps have is just kind of like the user engagement and retention part, which is a question mm-hmm. I always ask people whenever they come out with a new app is like, how do you address that? Because I think a lot of people, they might be motivated to download, like, for example, like a cognitive behavioral therapy based self journaling, or, you know, an app with self directed exercises when they're starting to feel low. But if you're really stressed or anxious, and I noticed from my personal experience, like you're gonna stop checking in, you're not gonna be as motivated to check in. But conversely, I've also, I know from my own personal experience too, is that when I'm feeling better, when I'm less stressed or anxious, I, I stop checking into them too, because it's like, my, I don't really want to think about my mental health anymore. I'd rather like, you know, scroll like on Instagram or look exactly. up like, you know, <laughs> right. I, I, I want to look at pretty pictures and I want to listen to music. I don't want to like think about my mental health when I'm feeling better. Yeah, so that's one of the questions I ask that I've kind of been interested in, in looking in. I think what I've seen and, you know, I think other people who kind of observe the space I've seen is that the most effective trackers are the ones that are kind of passive. Like, for example, if you have a smartwatch, mm-hmm. you can see like, I mean, I know if I'm feeling depressed or anxious, um, my steps will go way down because I'm like, I'm a <laughs> lot less motivated to leave the house or go out and do things. So honestly, like for me, that's just 
been kind of like the easiest way for me to like look back in time and be like, oh, okay, I was feeling good during this period or, oh, well, that wasn't a good spell for me. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. I have to ask you, so I want you to talk about your own history, but I want to start off by asking you, how does it make you how does it make you feel when you know that these powerful people that you're talking about or people who hope to be powerful, right, who are just starting out with startups, will only talk to you off the record about their anxiety and depression because they don't want to be seen as weak. Like, does that does that hurt you as someone who has her own mental health challenges? How do you feel about that? I, you know, I think one of the things I was just actually thinking about before recording the interview is, um, before talking to you, is that I... still get really anxious before interviews myself (laughs) because I like all the time like um, even if it's just going to be a 15 minute call and it's you know a type of story that I've done like you know hundreds of times before literally I still get really nervous Mm. one of the things I always remember is that especially for people who are a very early stage startup, you know, maybe some somebody who's just raised angel or seed or even like you know a series a they're probably more nervous about talking to me than I am to them. But I know it's like, it's like, for example, when I've covered startups, and for some reason, they run into difficulty. I know that's been the case with like, for example, I covered some childcare focused startups in the US. And obviously, you know, when the lockdown started, Mm -hmm. uh, that was a really hard time for them or founders that I personally like, but for whatever reason, their startups just didn't take off. Which, you know, which happens more often than not, you know, even even if they have a really good idea. Um, I think, you know, from a journalistic perspective, we're taught to, like, ask hard questions, you know, and really drill in, um, especially, you know, for companies that are larger and that do have a big impact or having a social impact, whether good or bad. But I feel like sometimes if I could sense somebody is going through a hard time, it can be hard for me to be as critical as I should be, if that makes any sense. I mean, I still ask the questions I need to, and I saw just the issues, but I definitely, I think, am cognizant of trying to do it in a gentle way. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Um, that's so interesting, right? Because I never thought yeah. about startup founders as vulnerable until you mentioned that. Well, so tell your own story, if you don't mind. I think, um, yeah, I was basically diagnosed when depress- with depression. I think I was officially diagnosed when I was 15- 14 or 15. 
But I had known for some time that there was just something off, you know, well, I, I think maybe off is not the best way to put it. But I knew that basically, like what I was experiencing mood wise wasn't normal. I think honestly, like, I remember being about 12 years old, and I saw on MTV that Kurt Cobain had died. Mm. And I just remember it was almost like something clicked in my head. And I realized there are, you know, there's deaths of sadness or despair or whatever that just aren't normal. I think, you know, I remember I was following news about his death. And there are people who are being like, well, he was just a selfish, like spoiled, you know, 20 something. He just you know, it was just like things were getting hard. So he just checked out of it. And I just remember feeling extremely defensive hmm. and having that reaction and realizing, okay, at that point, like I'd been dealing with kind of symptoms of depression and thinking that none of this is normal. And then once I got to high school, my mood started getting, I, it started struggling with it more and more in terms of both anxiety and depression. And I remember going to my high school counselor and being like, I think I might have depression. And she basically took out a checklist, like an assessment checklist. And she kind of read the questions and made me answer each of them. And at the end, I remember very clearly, she was like, yeah, I don't think you have depression according to this checklist. Wow. I was really stunned. Like I was 14 years old. I, I didn't know what to say. I'd like to think that wouldn't happen now. Like things have changed a lot over the past two decades and a half. But it just continued to escalate. And I think trying to explain what I was going through to my parents, like just trying to explain to people that I was getting to a point where I knew that I needed help. I can't remember if I was 14 or 15, if it was freshman or sophomore year. Um, I tried to overdose on sleeping pills. But midway through, I think, taking them, I was like, I don't want to do this. I just remember mm. freaking out. And I called my friend. And, of course, she freaked out, and she called the police. Um, and they sent, like, an ambulance over to my address because she knew where I lived. And it didn't ultimately turn out to be dangerous, but, you know, you still have to, you know, be put in a hospital for assessment. I spent a week in the pediatric psychiatric ward, and then I got put on medication, and I, you know, I also went to therapy. But then when I went to college, I remember – Going through this phase where I really just genuinely believed that I didn't have depression anymore because I really enjoyed being at college. I, I enjoyed being, in, you know, independent. I loved my school. Um, but then 9-11 happened while I was in college. And I didn't – and I was in um, Westchester County at that time. Mm -hmm. um, right outside was, New York City. Yeah, right outside. I was actually in a commuter town for New York City. So I saw a lot of missing posters. And it's funny because I didn't make the connection then that that might have contributed to my mood like over the next few months but like I just remember like the semester after that um I ended up going into the psychiatric ward again like two times in one semester because my school basically gave me like two options they're like you could take a leave of absence or you could go psychiatric hospital and then after that we could come up with a treatment plan for you but you have to do that if you want to stay in school during the semester it's, it sounds like it sounds like throughout your journey you tried to ask the people who were supposedly in charge for help and that they sort of let you down repeatedly that's what I've, I've thought about that a lot because this happened when I was like a teenager and then it happened when I was 20 and now I'm 39 years old so 
I've really thought about that a lot, about how much of it was just at that time, you know, a kind of like a cultural thing, you know, just the fact that people weren't perhaps at his where, how much of it was cultural. My parents are very open about it now. Like they're very, I could talk very candidly about the depression with them now, but they were still kind of products of the community we grew up in. And I think it's really hard for a lot of like, just to make a generalization, like Asian families, especially first generation, second generation immigrants to talk about mental health issues. There have been times when I've been extremely angry, you know, at my college, for example, a lot of my identity and my sense of self was tied into the classes I went to, my friends there. And so, you know, looking back, I wish I had taken that leave of absence instead of going to the psychiatric hospitals because my stays during college were really traumatizing. I just remember, like, I would say the kind of scariest part of it was like when I got in there, they wouldn't tell me when... I could leave. And that was by far the scariest part of it. I, you know, I think it was like, I didn't feel young back then because I don't think any 20 year old sees themselves as like kind of young or vulnerable, but I was. And I was 20. And, you know, there are people in there who had much more serious problems than I had and who the out, I, I think one of the things about being in a mental hospital, I mean, the psychiatric ward was that it was it made me aware because I just remember the way some of the doctors and nurses treated me. You could see they definitely had compassion fatigue because uh, I was I was in a I was kind of like an assessment with a doctor and I think some residents and he asked me how I was doing and I said, well, um, considering that I would prefer to be almost anywhere but here, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> and he said, well, I'd rather be golfing. Oh and my I'm gosh. Like, Dude, you could leave whenever you want and go golfing. I'm here, like, uh, nobody's told me when I could leave. I can't sign myself out, apparently. You know, so I just remember just sitting there and staring at him and being like, like, seriously? You know, I was so shocked. And also, um, but at the same time, like, I also realized how much privilege I had because there are people in there who didn't have the resources my family did, who didn't have, like, a plan for how they were going to what they were going to do after they got out of the hospital. For me, I always had like my family and I knew that after I got out of the hospital, I'd go back to school. You know, I had this whole kind of pathway. I was just curious like how your mental health was. Um, someone asked me recently, a, a younger person sort of in her first job mm-hmm. who was having a really hard time with the unstructured nature of life after mm-hmm. school. And I was curious for you when you graduated and also, it's interesting to me that you chose to work in a field that is like kind of anti-authoritarian and anti-institutional. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> but I'm not I hadn't really thought about that way. But yeah, I realized that it is. Um, it was super, super important for me to have a routine or to just have a pathway set for me, mm. which again was really privileged because, yeah, I went back to college. Then after college, I spent a year interning. And then while applying to graduate school, and then I went to the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And then after that, the next step was clear. It was to get, you know, an entry level, a job. So I started working at the Wall Street Journal online. And then I got pretty good. Yeah, so that was, yeah, so I had kind of all that said to me. And then, you know, I remember at that point, like, I, I met my husband while we were in grad school together. And he got offered a job in Taiwan. And so after that, I was just like, oh, you know what? Why do I apply, try to see if I could get a scholarship to study Chinese? 
in um, Taiwan. So there was all these like different steps for me like that I set, you know, I, okay, so then I got to Taiwan, say Chinese, my goal was to um, at least spend a couple years working here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of, ex- I mean, I'm still in Taiwan. So obviously, <laughs> things change, but I just remembered and then, you know, I had and then I kept setting these goals for myself, like, I'm going to freelance for New York Times. That's like our, um, I'm getting New York Times byline, I'm going to do XYZ. And wow. then I remember, I, and then I got to my early 30s. And I was just like, what's next? Okay, I'm gonna have a baby. Did you feel like you were doing it because you loved like, it, it sounds like the journalism thing and then was was really joyful for you in a way. It was, um, or no, my Wednesday was a story joyful <laughs> all the time. Um, but um, basically, what it gave me was structure, mm, you know, and, and um, talking to other people too. I think it was always like one of the things I've always enjoyed about reporting is that I am pretty introverted by nature. I kind of have like my couple of friends that I'm like really close to who are my confidants. But aside from that, I kind of keep to myself a lot. Yeah. So it's always been my way of connecting with people. Yeah, it's like people who have different who have different goals, who have a different point point of view. Isn't that so funny? I was thinking about that too because I also like I have really bad social anxiety, and I picking yeah. up the phone. I mean, I've said this before on the show. Every time before I talk to someone, I basically want to cancel. I'm I don't want to do it. I get anxious. I get depressed. And then once I'm engaged, it's it's wonderful for me. And then I go back into my hole, and I'm alone again. And I think it's interesting that people like us often become interviewers, like professional sort of, we like to draw people's stories out. I don't even know why that is, but we do. I think so. Yeah, I I think basically, yeah, I have the exact same experience. Like before each interview, I'm, you know, there's always part of me that's like, oh, God, (laughs) you know, I get stressed out. And then when I'm actually into it, it's like, it's actually pretty cool. You're talking to somebody and chatting with them. And um, you know, engaging with them. And then, you know, I think part of what I like about journalism is that you get your notes and you gather all of your information, your research, your interviews, your your notes, and then you kind of shape it into a cohesive story. Yeah, I mean, it's actually still a really stressful process for me, but you kind of end up with like this huge jumble of information, right? And then you kind of organize it into a cohesive format for people structure. to read. A structure. Yeah, structure, exactly. I get a lot of questions from listeners all around the world about cultural differences on mental mental health. And, and, and we touched on this, but I just want to circle back because you've lived and worked in Asia now for many years. You grew up in America. What are you seeing um, change in terms of discussion and openness about mental health and business in Asia, maybe that you're not seeing in the U.S. or vice versa? You know, I think at Taiwan, I, I think definitely there's, there has gradually been a shift from you know, depression is something that you treat with medication to kind of people be more open to, um, you know, to talk therapy or, you know, different forms of support besides just trying to, um, besides focusing on medication. I'm very grateful. I take medication. I'm very grateful for it. But at the same time, I definitely do not think it's only, it should be the only thing that somebody relies on. So I'm glad to see that in Taiwan. I remember when I when I first started seeking treatment for depression here, I think at that like I've been here for like twelve years. I remember when I tried to find a doctor ten years ago, it was constantly like it was like, yeah, it was like basically the focus was on here's like, you know, SSRI and then here's like uh, um here's a powerful sedative and then here's some like, you know, ambient. And I was just like, Holy crap, you're just giving me this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
<laughs> and there's always part of you that's like, yeah, I'll just take pills and it'll all go away. That's easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is, yeah, there is like, there was definitely like, I mean, an element of like, woohoo, I got my like, I got my like anti-anxiety drugs. Yay. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, but at the same time, that's not like sustainable or healthy um, to rely on drugs alone. And I think, you know, gradually I've kind of seen a shift um, towards, you know, it's like the discussion that's happened in the U.S., like where you go from a shift to being like, well, let's focus on the brain chemistry part and whether or not drugs are good to just like social, cultural issues. You know, I, I think in Taiwan, you know, it's it's a country that's like changed a lot over the past, like, well, yeah, over, over just like within my parents' lifetime or my grandparents' lifetime. And I think there's maybe more awareness of, uh, I would say, intergenerational trauma and how that informs the way different generations interact with one another. Because those are all issues that came to the forefront during Taiwan's presidential election in January. So this is a really fun year for me because I'm going to be um, observing two like highly contentious like presidential elections or participating in them. Um, Yeah, and and I think that's... um, that conversation is now happening. I'm not sure how it is in other Asian countries. But I feel like there's more willingness to kind of mm-hmm. talk a bit about it. Well, with the pandemic, I think it's just kind of really hard to ignore that the public health crisis part of it also includes mental health. It, in terms of kind of like the spells of depression, anxiety I've gone through over the past year, most of my life, whenever I went through those, it felt like a very lonely experience. But this year, it's like everybody. It's like when we talk about mental exhaustion or just being burnt out or even like, you know, specific things like having nightmares, I would Google it or I would ask my friends and, it, you know, everybody would be experiencing, a lot of people would be experiencing the same thing. How is your mental health in your sort of 30s and I guess entering your 40s? Like, how are you thinking about your mental health now? You know, I'm one of those people who I am definitely extremely happy not to be in my 20s anymore. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <it's, laughs> I think, you know, in terms of feeling like my early experience was depression, like, yeah, I did feel like to a certain extent that they were mismanaged by the people around me who I did reach out to help, mm-hmm. you know, but at the same time, like, at that point, understanding of mental health mood issues it's still developing um you know and then there's also you know that combined with just being in your 20s and sure of yourself and you know different things that come with kind of being younger you know to a certain extent like yeah am i just in my 30s especially now that i'm 39 so i'm like legitimately in my late 30s um i do feel i'm i'm less scared you know of depression right now because I remember when I was in my 20s and even in my early 30s, I always felt like there was this like ticking time bomb in my head. You know, like, would I be, would I be okay? Would I be like the person that I like to see myself as, which is somebody who, yeah, maybe I'm a little bit disorganized and sloppy, and like a little bit forgetful, but otherwise I have like my stuff together, you know, and I, and I enjoy life. I like to go out and in general, or am I going to be the person who's like, um, mm. am I going to be that 20 year who's like, collapse on the floor of a psychiatric ward, like crying, you know, there was always that part of me that was thinking, like, which is it going to be? And when is (sighs) that? When is that going to emerge again? I was really, really scared for a long time. Yeah, until like my 30s, I actually like, um, really wanted to become mom, but I was also really scared of what that would mean in terms of mental health. And for me personally, it hasn't been as scary as I thought it was going to be. I've Like, yeah, it's hard, but it's just been so much more filled with joy 
for me than anticipated. Like I knew it would be really rewarding, but it's just like <laughs> I didn't realize how fun it would be. I also I don't know exactly when it went away, but I don't feel like my head is a ticking time bomb anymore. You know, I mean, there are times definitely, especially over the past year, especially with the pandemic mm. going on, and especially in March, when it when I could no longer convince myself that my family in the U.S. was safe, you know, there, yeah, there have mm. been some pretty dark moments over the past year where I've asked myself, is this just like a normal emotional reaction to like a unprecedented like global crisis or is this my depression kind of like coming back I know it's it's always that sense of 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 oh gosh but 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 also it sounds like you've built resiliency and and that's one of the wonderful things about getting older I think yeah definitely I I I feel like in a a way kind of like what I went through when I was in my teens and 20s which was I mean, I've only recently kind of admitted to myself how traumatizing it was. I didn't want to use the word trauma for a long time because I I was always aware that there were other people, including people who other patients in the in the psychiatric wards I were I was in who had it much worse. But at the same time, I like you know a few years ago I was just like that was just really traumatizing, and it did shape my perception of myself. But in a way now, like in my late thirties, I feel like. I've gotten past the point of being scared to where I'm able to draw on that to kind of have some sense of resiliency and even nothing lasts forever, you know, and that's good things and bad things, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. everything evolves and sometimes you don't even realize that it's evolving until you're able to look back and be like, things are better right now. I mean, they're not perfect, but they are better they're better. I want to thank you so much for your work and for your honesty and 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 for the fact that I, that I that I found your work and that you talk about it so openly. I really want to recommend to people, especially people who are in tech or are in the startup community to look up Catherine's writing. Um, so thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your show. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my producer, Mary Dew, and thanks to Liz Sanchez for her help producing. Thanks to the team at HBR and the studio team who make the audio happen. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and their truths, for you, our listeners, and for our advertisers. Please send me feedback. You can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at moraam. And if you love the show, tell your friends or subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Maura Aaron's Mealy.